Hello and welcome back to Playability, where we hold conversations at the crossroads of gameplay and accessibility. I'm your host, Lauren Wolsey, and I'm here today with Sarah and Will Reed, the designers of Oaxaca, Crafts of a Culture. This game was a successful Kickstarter in summer 2017 that has recently completed fulfillment. It must be nice to have the project wrapped up. Yes, definitely. So can you go through the game's backstory a little bit? I would probably be the best one to answer that. I originally wanted to make a archaeology game, mostly because I was intensely watching lots and lots and lots of documentaries. So when I came with the idea to Sarah, it was with all these intricate... uh, Background notes. Yeah, vague historical references of all sorts of mysteries. And I also wanted to make a dice manipulation game. So that was the initial thought behind the game. And as we proceeded, we found out that the making the art for something that has been virtually unseen or nobody really knows what it should look like. Like, for example, he researched a sword that people know exists, but nobody knows where it is currently. So there's only kind of like vague, like written recordings of, I mean, there's not (laughs) much to go on. To make this thing a real thing. That sounds like you could just make it whatever you wanted to. (laughs) Right, right. But explaining that to an artist is a little bit dicey. So during the whole process of getting this into some sort of shapeable shape of an IP, our partner Ben, who had been working on a Oaxaca game, and he had like three, four iterations he was never happy with. He just said, okay, I'm just going to throw this out here. And you can say no if you want, but what about Oaxaca? And we had fallen in love with the theme. Yeah, we wanted him to make the game. Yeah, so we were fully intending that that was going to be one of his projects. And we said, sure, because one of the things I really wanted was a real life uh, IP attached to the game, a, a real theme that existed somewhere. So Oaxaca was more than enough. And we didn't have to vaguely tell an artist, okay, make this thing. We don't know what it looks like but make sure it looks like that thing. Yeah, excellent. So we've started to walk through this game's development path. It seems like you had a lot of the mechanics and and Ben had this existing theme that he wanted to make, and it it seemed like a very smooth combination of the two. Yeah, yeah. Originally, I used the general concept of archaeology where swords didn't necessarily mean attack, but they meant how cultures interact and usually battle or and the pots. just interact yeah interact and then pots were how a society lives and then there was like a fossil one to determine how the people are and that kind of then represented various mechanics in the game and he then presented all the various types of uh, handicrafts that are in Oaxaca and we went over them and discussed them to see which one was the best fit. And once we got over that hurdle, it game really didn't change mechanically. Mechanically, the original archaeology game is you'd go out into the ruins, dig up whatever artifacts you find, bring them back to your study. You would research them, get them prepared, write your whatever thesis thesis about it. And you'd put it in your gallery for display. And that's how you would get points at the end of the game. Well, with Oaxaca... You go out into the wilderness, you acquire your raw materials, your wood, your clay, whatever it is you need. You go back to your workshop, you make that into art, and you put it into your market stall 
for points at the end of the game. So it was amazing. It just so seamlessly came together. I think the hardest part was the different decks, how to best fit the concepts to the art. And even then, it's all abstracted anyways. So, mm-hmm. But it, it worked really well once we switched over and we started having some basic art assets. It was never turning back. That's the way it was going to be. That's fantastic. Often it's difficult to try to take an existing game and just apply a new theme to it, but it seems like this was sort of already prepped and ready to go and that it fit perfect. Yep. You've talked a little bit about the mechanics that the game's using. What are the primary goals of the player? Like how does one win and what are the targets that you're trying to reach? Uh, Generally, the player is trying to build the most and the best handicrafts that are available. And the ones that are best are the ones that usually take more work. And you do all of this through various dice manipulation. And I wanted to make sure that the dice didn't have numbers like so many other dice manipulators are because it just felt like a cheap way to say, oh, just add one to your die Yeah, because the problem with it just being numbers, it's very anti-thematic. And we've experienced that in a lot of things is the game may tell you a one means whatever it is. But when you're playing the game, you see the one as a one. And it is kind of cool that you can add one, subtract one. And so those mechanisms make it really easy to design, but it's not thematic. And so that was one of the big things is we wanted symbols on the dice. So this is, well, in the original pot, but now it's wood carvings or or basic wood that you're collecting. Um, And you use these dice when you roll them, you're going to use them both for gathering the raw materials as well as crafting what's in your workshop. And then the cards, as you get them finished, you have new abilities that let you manipulate your dice, as Will was saying. Yeah, because another important thing was with handicrafts, usually uh, certain families more specialize in a type of craft. So we have it set up that the way the dice work is if you use more of one particular thing, you actually get better at that craft and therefore have a kind of a characteristic design to how you play as well as the things you make. Yeah, that helps bring players into the theme and into the feel of the game. Now, bringing us around to one of the things that playability likes to focus on, what does accessibility mean to you guys? Well, for me, uh, since I'm legally blind, it's can I even play the game? Yeah, absolutely. Because it goes beyond color blindness, which I also have. I just don't see most games. So most of it has to be done in, in memory. Or we put games up higher if they have more open information, because that's things I can then ask. Like Sarah's like, OK, well, what do I have in front of me? And she can just read it out without affecting the gameplay. So we try to incorporate as much of that open information. I mean, there's still a bit here and there that I guess if you show people the cards you draw, it won't affect the game too much. But we try to make it so that as much of the information is open to players so that if anyone does need assistance, it's not going to be a game-breaking experience or give someone else who can see an advantage in any way. And we use symbols everywhere. So anyone with any colorblind issues is not going to have a problem. 
because in fact, all the icons are black and white. So there's not even color to them. The dice are colored, but only because we got to a stretch goal where each player then gets their own set of colored dice. But honestly, if everybody played with a different colored die, it doesn't matter. It's just that if everyone's rolling dice at the table, I know mine are blue, so I can pull my blue ones back if they mix in with your green ones. But other than that, the color of the dice doesn't matter. Everything is symbols. I will admit it's small cards. That's just so we're not taking up a monstrous amount of table space. Yeah, that's the one thing where if there's any vision accessibility issues, it's the fact that they're smaller cards. We did try to make the font more bold and not too complex. So again, it's the best we could do without taking up a whole table because a Tableau builder just takes up a lot of space. So it just made more sense to do the mini cards than the regular poker size cards. Yeah, there's always a balance to have to try to strike. And it sounds like you had a lot of the right kind of ideas in mind. It also feels over the past decade or so, it seems like games have gotten into a lot more open information than it's not just every single game has a hand of cards that nobody sees. (laughs) It seems like, yeah, as a community, we've branched out into realizing that open information doesn't mean that it's a solvable game. There's still a lot of play space out there. Mm -hmm. And especially with this, you may know what your opponents have, but because the dice introduces that random element, there's no determining who's going to win until you get to the end of the game. And there is a deck that can interact. For most part, the game is multiplayer solitaire. And if the players don't get into the wood carving deck, you really won't see any player interactive abilities. But even when you get into them, more of them are positive loops, such as I can take a cube off of each of the cards in my workshop, but everyone else can take one cube off of one card in their workshop. So it's positive player interaction. And the few things that are negative are more annoying things. Although there was one time there was, it did kind of make the difference between the game winning, but Most of the time, it's just going to be annoying your opponents rather than really hurting them. Yeah, another thing with the accessibility that's a bit different than just overcoming some sort of disability is we noticed in our own game playing is the bigger the game is, the less likely it hits the table. So when we uh, was working with Oaxaca, we originally had a really large game in mind, and we tested it out to go five rounds, and it, it really dragged on to the point of where most euro games are where it's good it's nice it's fun and now it's on the decline and is this game finally over so we actually made the conscious decision that we saw where the game started diverging and you started seeing the clear winners of the game which was all the way back in round three instead of round five so we made the tough decision of it's only going to be a three round game just so Time-wise, it's more accessible to hardcore gamers who might have a huge library and just looking for something easy to hit the table, but with enough meat on it mm. that they're going to be feel satisfied. And sure enough, we get a lot of that comment of, it's too short. And we tell them, well, you, you could play it longer. <laughs> yeah, I don't could. recommend it. No, because it's interesting. You get to about the middle of the fourth round and the game actually can start breaking people. Because you end up getting too many, because it's a tableau builder, so you keep adding cards and adding cards and adding cards, but you can only use so many cards per turn. So if you get more cards than you can use in a round, and then you've got to divide it up by turns, people got heavy AP. They just, the analysis paralysis hit hard. And even in people that didn't normally have any issues making decisions, 
And so we realized, yeah, if we could do kind of a half of a round, it would probably work. But at end of the third round, you know who's going to win. If you like it that much, play again, because now you have a new chance to actually win. It's always better to have players want to play the game again rather than asking, is this over yet? Yeah. So yeah. it seems like it was a tough choice to have to cut it down, but the right move. Yeah. yeah. What's your favorite part of the game when you're playing it? What's your it's favorite? hard to pick just one yeah, thing. Yeah, it yeah. is. I like it. so. Um. I like when you can actually see a chain of actions that you can all stitch together on a turn and have a very satisfying play because that's the goal that we typically have when it comes to a good engine builder is how do all these things work together so when you can use a die and use two cards and use your meeple and it all explodes into this cubes are flying everywhere and you're building like <laughs> That's the yeah. the really golden spot for me. I would have to say so, too. Um, kind of for me, and this is one part where some people have had difficulty. At the very beginning of the game, you roll your dice. You are pretty much going to have to do what the dice tell you at the beginning because you have no ability to modify it other than re-roll once. And I actually like that point because it makes me play differently every time. Because normally I, pl I have a certain way I like to play. There are certain decks that I like to play if I can. But if the dice are telling me I rolled four jewelry and I don't normally play jewelry, but I've got four of my dice or jewelry, I'm going to have to play jewelry. And so it helps me challenge myself every single time to try something new and explore the game even deeper, even though we are the designers. But it's like, I mean, we haven't played the game in over a year, so it's like kind of relearning it all over again. So. Yeah, it seems like that helps with replayability, too, is that you can't just have one strategy that you're going to be able to do every single right. time. Yeah. What do you think makes this game most memorable for players when you've been playtesting this and watching people play? What do you think really hooks them in? Well, what hooks them in is definitely the art. People love the look of Oaxaca. I mean, we worked really hard to get the art to look authentic. We had a consultation to make sure we weren't doing anything wrong. In fact, we had to change the art at one point because we had uh, told our artists to do this certain style because it's beautiful. And then we were told um, there's only one artist that does that. So that's kind of not exactly like copyright, but he is the only person that makes that style. I think what was a tin art. Yeah, it was a tin art with a heart style. Yeah. And so we were advised to not plagiarize basically because other styles everybody does it. And if everybody does it, then that's fine. We can copy it. If someone makes a wood carving of a giraffe, if that's a common thing, then you can do that. But there was a certain style of tin art that had this heart and a hand. And I can't remember it exactly. It was beautiful. So we had to change that. But that's what draws people in is because it's just such beautiful art. And then I'd like to think what keeps people staying is the engaging gameplay that you get to roll dice, but then you're trying to learn how to manipulate it and build different cards. I mean, half the time it's people ooing and aahing over the art, and then it's the, oh, wow, I get to do this now? <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I can't say uh, we put anything mechanically that's awe-inspiring and game-changing. Mm -hmm. We just tried to do it in the way that we felt was the best experience. So what it ultimately comes down to is, yeah, the theme is really what grabs people. In fact, I've had people from Mexico who have done podcasts about it, and they said it's gone over very well. 
because our whole push and emphasis on the game was to celebrate the culture of Oaxaca, because I know Ben and I have Hispanic heritage. So it was something in our backgrounds that we were like, we want to see this because this is something we don't see out on Mm -hmm. the market. And there's nothing that's negative about what we're presenting. If anything, there's been a lot of people who see what, like we did a special edition where we imported almost 500 alabrije, which are the wooden little sculpture uh, wood carving, carvings. Wood carvings. And uh, Sarah's been, she keeps directing people. like, okay, this is the importer we used. Because yeah. he has some really beautiful alabrije sets. There's like five of them. For yeah. 35. So for, the, for our game, we imported four per game. And so we, we don't have any more to offer. But whenever somebody asks, hey, how do I get a special edition? I'm like, well, you can't get the box. There's just no more. But these alabrijes came from Oaxaca. So you can buy them. Granted, if you can fly to Oaxaca, that that'd probably be the best way. But <laughs> And then you get to visit that. Oaxaca. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But sans that, here's the link. He imports quite a bit. And right now, as of the time of recording, he has several sets of five. And they're really cute. So five is obviously more than you need. And then when those run out, he goes and does another trip to get some more. So his site is always getting new stuff in. And he has a bunch of wonderful other Oaxacan crafts that are available. And yeah, I'm just so enthralled. And I'm just so happy that we could take part in this to support the culture and spread the love of it and just get it out there and have more people interested. Yeah, absolutely. I'll have to get that link from you to put in the description of the episode so that our listeners can access those. If our listeners were interested in getting a copy of the game, is it available at all? Yes. Uh, You can go to undyingstudios.com forward slash Oaxaca, and we'll make sure that you have the link to that. Perfect. So That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. For more information about the topics that we discussed in this episode and the links that we just mentioned, we'll have those in the About This Episode section on our website at playabilitypod.com. And if our listeners have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, please email us at playabilitypod at gmail.com and find us on major social media platforms as at playabilitypod. Thanks again for listening. Play with a new perspective. Perspective.